Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. On this week's show, Adam has an interview with Keith Bank. Keith is the founder and managing partner of KB Partners and has a diverse background in startups, real estate, and other entrepreneurial ventures. He founded and serves on the board of directors of Club Champions Golf and was a past chairman of Steadyman. Keith has been a very hands-on venture capital and angel investor in a wide variety of industries, including medical, semiconductor, internet, telecom, software, cable TV, sports and golf, consumer and retail, and social media arenas. Prior to forming KB Partners Venture Funds, Keith co-founded and served on the board and is president of MST Analytics, a semiconductor product and services business. Keith has been honored by Crane Chicago Business as a 40 under 40, a who's who of Chicago executives, and one of the 100 most prominent members of Chicago's tech community. Keith is active in CEOs Against Cancer and NUWAVE, an athletic fundraising vehicle for Northwestern. Keith has a bachelor's in economics from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and holds an MBA in finance from Kellogg here at Northwestern. Keith has such a diverse background, and we're grateful to have him on the show. So everyone, please enjoy Adam's conversation with Keith Bank. Welcome, everyone, to the Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Today, we have with us uh, Keith Bank. Keith's had a long and very distinguished career, both inside and outside of the sports industry. He is currently focused on his work at uh, KB Partners, which we're going to jump into in a lot more detail in addition to everything else that he's worked on throughout his career. So first, Keith, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Great. So can you start with a little bit of background about your career and particular one of the things we want to talk about for our students is what did you learn from outside of the sports space that you were able to bring into your um, role now working in the sports industry? Sure. So I've had, uh, I'd say, probably an unusual career, and I'll give you the quick recap, but uh, went to uh, typical, went to Wharton undergrad, got a business degree, and uh, basically turned on most of the business offers I had, went to work for a fairly good company, uh, large company, lasted all three months and quit and moved back to St. Louis, which is where I was from. And then I started a company uh, and sold it. And then it came to Northwestern to get my MBA at Kellogg. I've been in Chicago ever since. And coming out of grad school, I went to work in the real estate development industry, did that for about a decade. But I always have had an intellectual curiosity and had my fingers in a lot of uh, different pies. I produced uh, two feature films along the way just as a uh, hobby because I thought they were interesting. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but uh, <laughs> definitely a good experience. Met a lot of interesting folks. Uh, and uh, kind of the mid-90s saw the wave of tech coming. It's hard to believe that uh, that was when cell phone technology was just emerging. Internet was just getting started. And I thought Chicago and the Midwest had a real void for early stage venture money. Started making a few angel investments, kind of enjoyed it. And one day I walked into my real estate partners and said, I'm quitting. And they said, why are you quitting? I said, I'm going to start a venture capital firm. And they said, well, what do you know about the venture capital industry? And I said, not much, but I'll figure it out. It can't be that complicated. And literally hung out a shingle did a few one-off deals as an angel with my own money and a few folks that trusted and believed in me. We were fortunate and in one of our first deals returned 10, 10x in two years. So we proved to people that we could 
do it successfully and then raised a, a couple of early stage tech focused venture funds, nothing to do with sports. As a matter of fact, we, we, I wouldn't say couldn't, but wouldn't invest in sports per se, just because that's not what we told our LPs we were going to invest in. It was internet products and services, computer hardware and software, medical devices, industrial technology, those kinds of things. Um, the good news was we were successfully raised two funds. Uh, the challenging news was they were vintage 1999-2000-2001, which anybody that knows about the history of VC, probably the worst vintage years in the history of VC. But we lived to tell about it, and we actually had a pretty good track record on a relative basis, nothing to write home about on an absolute basis. But um, And then in 2010, after all the companies had been harvested, um, I decided to go back to my angel investing roots because I felt like I was a better angel perhaps than an institutional VC. I just wanted to find interesting entrepreneurs, didn't matter what stage, what size, what field, um, and did a series of one-off transactions, kind of how I started with my own money and put separate LLCs together for each company and raised a separate investor group for each company. and. Uh, fortunately, there across about 16 companies, we returned uh, about 8x. So that was a really nice run. Um, and a handful of the companies happened to be at the intersection of sports and technology. And it's an area that I was super passionate about. I was a three-sport athlete in high school, always loved sports, followed sports. And at the time, there were just a bunch of innovations that appeared like they were about to come into play in the landscape, whether it be in analytics, whether it be in sensor technology, artificial intelligence, concussion technology, the emergence and legalization of sports betting, emergence of esports, uh, just a, a whole host of areas that if you would have mentioned them to someone five years previous, they wouldn't have known what the heck you were talking about. So decided uh, to get back into the fund business and about two and a half years ago, decided to go out and try to raise a sports tech focused VC fund. Uh, we raised a $41 million fund, all from high net worth individuals and successful entrepreneurs, no institutional money. And uh, we've made 10 investments in the fund to date and probably have room for another five before we go out and attempt to raise uh, fund two. And just seeing, a lot of stuff, 1,500-ish deals a year, and we make five or six investments a year. So ma massive funnel, massive weeding out process, but just meeting a whole bunch of interesting people with great technologies. And, uh, you know, I, I love the space. I don't feel like it's work. I, I, you know, everything I look at is, is kind of my avocation and passion. So um, I re really enjoy the space. Yeah, and so... Uh there's a lot there that I want to cover, but just in terms of, you mentioned some terms like LPs and 8X returns, and some of our audience may not be as familiar with those terms. Can you just talk about kind of, you know, when you're talking about either venture, your uh, your funds or angel investing, like what you, what you mean in terms of just the nuts and bolts of investment and what you're looking at and how you evaluate deals? Sure. So LPs are limited partners, uh, you know, investors in a fund. Typically a fund is typically set up as a partnership and investors come in via that vehicle. And there's typically a general partner who is me or us who kind of assemble and do all the work and uh, have the liability and the responsibility for managing the fund. Um, so, you know, you basically 
uh, raise a pool of assets. Uh, it's it's typically a blind pool. You tell people basically what you're going to invest in thematically, but not necessarily specifically. So in our case, we do mostly seed and Series A deals of very early, typically five to ten employees, zero to a million or two in revenue, uh, much more than two folks in a garage with an idea usually with a hardened product and service, maybe some early customer traction, uh, the bulk of the team in place. Um, but, but early stage venture is highly differentiated from late stage venture and private equity. Um, whereas I believe, you know, private equity to me is a bit more about financial engineering. And, uh, you know, I think much more analytically oriented because there's a lot of numbers to look at and evaluate, whereas what we do, most of the projections we get, you know, kind of aren't worth the paper they're written on because, uh, you know, the business is just getting started and it's the wild west out there. So as an early stage investor, it is so much more about the who than the what. Um, you know, the what has to be interesting and intriguing, but without the who, you know, we won't make an investment. Um, if there's one thing I've learned, you know, it's pattern recognition and having looked at probably 40,000 deals over the years and made about 100 investments, um, you know, it's like real estate is location, location, location. I think early stage venture is, you know, people, people, people. It's, it's, it's really that simple. I mean, again, you have to look at a lot of other variables, but uh, we're highly, highly focused on the entrepreneurial teams that we back. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're looking for in the people since people are so important to your investment pieces? Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of it is you can put your finger on and a lot you can't, but um, I'd say, you know, key attributes include charisma, the ability to attract and retain talent, uh, integrity, honesty, coachability, not the know-it-all-itis that some entrepreneurs <laughs> might, might have. Um, I think the ability to pivot have a cast iron stomach so when things don't go so well you know you know how to take it you know go home and, and kick the dog and uh, you know you have to be able to roll roll with the punches so to speak uh, we like have been there done that someone who's been there done it before whether they've had success or maybe they failed but at least they've um you know been through the school and they know kind of what, what to look for and, and, and how to do it. Uh, and also, I, I think it's really important that, that, that an area that's not emphasized enough, when an entrepreneur is looking for money, I think it's just as important for them to choose the source of capital as it is for the source of capital to choose the money. And it's not even necessarily just the firm you're taking money from, but it's the individual within the firm that you, you'll be working with because over the next five to seven years, you're going to spend an awful lot of time with them and probably as much as you do with your family. And if there's, whether there's personality conflict or some other reason that you don't, you know, really enjoy that person's company, it's a, it's, it's a long ride. So, uh, so those are just some of the things. And again, part of it is just having seen enough people, you kind of can see the fire, feel the fire in the belly. You know, I mean, some, some entrepreneurs come in and they say, you know, I'm not quitting my job yet. And maybe when this happens, I'm not putting in any of my own money, but I want a lot of your money. And I'm not, you know, those are usually signs that they're not committed. And we have other people that come in and say, look, I've got my whole life savings in this thing and I'm working 18 hours a day and, and I'm going to do what it takes. And, and, and you can, you can feel it and, and smell it. So uh, we want, we want not only smart, talented people, but also, you know, hungry and humble people. 
Can you talk about, you mentioned that you're spending a lot of time, obviously, with all your portfolio companies. Can you talk about kind of what are the, the what's it like to interact? What are you guys doing to help your portfolio companies succeed? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of every firm says, oh, we're much more than money and we're value add and all that stuff. I mean, I, I, I truly believe we are. So it, it, it kind of comes from a couple areas. One, um, you know, I think we're constantly in contact with them. I'd say most of our companies we're talking to at least once or twice a week and many, many times more than that. But we assist with everything from strategy to coaching to helping recruit missing links to the management team to making introductions to potential customers and suppliers to help with you know, fundraising, when it comes time for an exit to help with, with that, to analyze the alternatives. Um, so, we, you know, we want to be kind of that trusted resource that we're really part of the team. We don't want to just be seen as as money and a capital source. And, and um, I think if you talk to most entrepreneurs that we've backed, they would tell you, you know, we add a ton of money beyond value, a ton of value beyond money, I'm sorry. And the other thing we bring to the table is we've assemble not only a great group of limited partners, but also a phenomenal group of advisory board members. And so we, before we started the fund, said, uh, you know, we're going to look at these six or seven or eight areas in which to invest. And we want to have some really smart people who can help in those areas. So like sports betting scenario of interest we have one of the leading, you know, sports betting folks on our advisory board. You know, we want to look at social media related deals. We have one of those. We want to go, you know, look at media streaming opportunities with someone who's great in that. Um, we have people like the former CEO of Top Golf who understands, you know, consumer, you know, inside and out. Um, we have a senior exec from Sport Radar who's one of the leading providers of data and information to the sports industry. So that, you know, we thought, and most of them were cold calls. I mean, I mean, a few of them were prior relationships, but we just went and sought out people who believed in what we were doing and wanted to be part of it. And they help us with potential introductions to companies. They help us analyze uh, deals when we're looking at them. And they, more importantly, once we're in a deal, you know, we're one step away from pretty much anybody we want to get to in any industry, uh, which is kind of a nice, nice thing to have. We can get to just about anybody. It's interesting what you brought up about cold calling and the advisory board. You know, one of the things our students are trying to do is break into the sports industry and trying to get that first job. And, you know, that, that can um, at times be a cold outreach to somebody that they don't know. So how did you find that to be successful? How were you able to navigate, particularly for the people of the quality who are on your advisory board using that type of approach? I think you really, there's, there's no substitute for persistence. I think persistence and uh, don't be afraid to, you know, in a nice way, have your hat in hand, but also uh, be, I mean, one example I'll, I'll give you is um, David Levy, who was the president of Turner Broadcasting. You know, I'd heard of him and read his name, but didn't know much more than that. But I read that when AT&T uh, bought Turner, that he was leaving. So I, picked up the phone and called them and I finally got through to him and I said who I am and what I do and he said uh, you know I'm um, you're gonna take the summer off I've worked for whatever 40 plus years and uh, you know call me back you know four months from now I'm not taking any calls I'm not looking at anything so I called him back four months from then he said boy you did what you said you were gonna do and I talked to him then and 
had an opportunity for him, for him, and we got to know each other a little bit, flew him into Chicago and spent a little time together, introduced him to one of our companies. Now he's on the board of one of our companies where he can add a ton of value. And, you know, he just said, you're a persistent bugger. You know, you, 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 you did what you said you were going to do. You put the effort in, and I like your style. I mean, so, so many times, you know, I, I know a lot of people can be very – either shy or afraid someone's not going to talk to them. I think particularly in this Corona world, I found that like you can email or call just about anybody. People are working from home and they have time on it. If you can figure out how to get to them, look, some people are rude and some people aren't going to be interested, but I've always find anybody that reaches out to me, whether it's a student or an entrepreneur, if they're nice in their approach, I carve out 15, 20 minutes to talk to them. I mean, I just believe that's the way you should be. That's the way I would have liked it when I was looking to break into industry when I was a, you know, either a college student or a graduate student. And so I, I don't think there's any substitute for the nice factor. One of the other um, rules we have in our firm is, you know, these, these 1500 deals that we get in a year, we respond to every single one of them without fail. Even if it's a three sentence, thanks so much, not a great fit for us. We give them a few why it's not a great fit for us. If you ever need any assistance, feel free to give us a call. And many times, we turn people down and they said, wow, these guys are nice guys. And another deal has come to us because it's their brother, sister, cousin, uncle, uh, whoever who's looking in. And that was something, you know, we might be interested in. So I think, you know, there's no second chance to make a good first impression. So I think that, that you know, they can just follow the golden rule, you know, do it, do it for others that you want them to do to you. Just, you know, be nice to people within reason. It, yes, does it add an extra hour to my day every day? For sure. But I think it comes back to you many times over. Yeah, I've had a, I had a similar experience with David Levy, so it's interesting to hear your own. But uh, he's a good guy, and he knows some of our uh, investors and advisory board members, too. But I wanted to go back to you, and I wanted to go back to the beginning because it builds on what you were talking about in terms of cold calling, cold reach out. You mentioned before when you first started your own uh, practice in 1996 that you kind of, you know, people were wondering, you know, you didn't have any experience. How were you going to do that? Can you talk about what it was like just to start your first fund and launch your first investment vehicle and, and what that process was like in terms of, you know, sourcing in, uh, companies and capital? Well, it was interesting to say the least, because, you know, if you go to try to get institutional money or bigger money, they say, you know, what's your track record? What have you done? Why should I trust you? So our first one, we didn't even bother going after institutional money because we thought it would be a waste of time. I think I, I kept track purposefully. I think we had 656 investor presentations to raise $20 million, um, our first fund. And it, we did a similar outreach. We had, I think, eight advisory board members. I think six of them were cold calls, never met us before. We just said what we were going to do and why we were going to do it and how we were going to do it. And we were fortunate enough to get some pretty interesting people who all invested with us as well. But it was hard. It took about two years, maybe a little less, maybe 18, 18 to 20 months. Um, and then a couple of years into the first fund, we went out and raised an $80 million fund, which was probably half high net worth individuals and half institutional or quasi-institutional money. And it's a totally different pitch when you're trying to get five or $10 million from an endowment or you're trying to get it from a large family office. 
you know, it, they're much more sophisticated as opposed to going to a wealthy individual who they either like you or they don't, they trust you or they don't, they are in the mood or they, they had a recent exit and they got some loose change floating around or they don't. It's, it, to me, I've always related a lot more to the entrepreneur and the wealthy individual who, again, either click or you don't. And that's really what you got to make that personality fit. Whereas again, when you're going into an institution, it's committee, it's more serious, it's more rigor, it's more, and, and you know, they go more by the rule book. They're advised by Cambridge Associates or one of these uh, groups that says you should only look at this type of fund and you should only allocate this much to your portfolio. And, you know, we don't believe in this space and, you know, we're over allocated here and we're under allocated. You know, it, it, it's much more of a jigsaw puzzle. And you, one of the other things that came up in the initial, um, your initial response was the, the vintage, you know, the funds from 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, you've obviously, there's been, now the, we're in the third, I guess, if you want to call it, uh, down cycles or uh, potential recessionary cycles. What did you learn from the 1999, 2000, 2001 that you were able to apply in 2008 and potentially apply into the current environment? You know, I, I think that if you have good, solid entrepreneurs and a valid business thesis, you will survive. Whether you will thrive or not, you know, might be dependent on the economy and might not. But even in the lowest of low times, you know, tons of very, very successful businesses have come out of very hard times. Um, so I've always been contrarian in my approach. Um, I think, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going and that there's ways to, you know, it gets less competitive. It gets, um, you really separate the wheat from the chaff. Who's got the persistence to, to stick it out. So what I learned is I think you can make a lot of money in good times and bad. And I, you know, I've been, I've always been way more of a micro guy than a macro guy. Um, if you focus on what you do and you do it well, um, again, I, these early stage companies, yes, they are a little reliant on the economy, but, you know, we work in such a small bubble that I hate to say they're insulated because they're not because some of our portfolio companies now are just basically shut down because of Corona and because what they do involves people interacting with people. But the ones that are SaaS models or video streaming or, you know, things that are more reliant on technology are, are actually thriving right now. So, um, you know, anything where you're dealing with ticketing or fans or people in stands, or you know, those are really challenged in the sports space right now. Um, and thankfully, we don't have much exposure there. And can you talk, I mean, some of your initial investments and, you know, you obviously spent a lot of time and still are spending a lot of time involved with golf and in the golf space. Can you tell our audience why you thought golf in particular was a good place to invest? Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. That was another one of my contrarian because the golf landscape is littered with failure after failure after failure. There are very, very few success stories. And my thesis was that many golf businesses are started or run by former professionals or hobbyists or people who love the sport, love the game, and may know a lot about it, but may not have the business uh, acumen or skills to be successful. And um, you know, I've made four golf investments now. I'm happy to say three of them. Uh, two of them were huge winners. One of them appears to gonna be a very large winner and the fourth one that, you know, the jury's still out. But um, 
the first one was a company called golf.com. Uh, Mike Lazaro, an entrepreneur, came to me right after the internet bust. And nobody would put a nickel in an internet company to save their life. And he was looking for a million dollars. He was kind of the first um, golf-related website that had uh, you know information on the on the pro stuff and travel and and equipment and pretty much anything you'd want. He had a great URL, obviously golf.com. So we invested a million dollars with Mike. I just liked him as an auntie. He's a Northwestern guy too, by the way. Um, and uh, you know, we 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 made eight times our money in two years. He sold the business to Time Inc. Uh, it was a great, great win for us. Really happy and, and observing Mike. I just said, like, this is a guy I want to back in the future. And lo and behold, about three years later, came back with his next business idea, which is a company called Buddy Media. And I invested basically no due diligence, no anything. I actually thought the idea was pretty stupid, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't understand it, but I said, he'll figure it out. And sure enough, about six, eight months into the business, he totally changed what the original premise was, morphed it into another business. And that company sold for over $800 million. And that was one of our best investments in the history of our, you know, so, you know, and again, if Mike wanted to open a popcorn stand on the corner tomorrow, I would back him. He's that good. And I've actually, I am backing him in his third company right now. Um, so, uh, you know, that was a very good, uh, good introduction. And he was very loyal and came back to the people who, you know, invested in him originally. Um, so that was, that was the first golf one. The second one was kind of an interesting story. I, I, Took up golf at about age 30. I was a team sport guy prior to that, but I've had 18 orthopedic surgeries and golf is about my speed these days. So um, I was looking to buy a new set of clubs and I went to one of these big box stores and you know, the $10 an hour employee said, hit this, hit this, you know, here's what you should buy. You need stiff shafts and your irons, buy these clubs. So I said, okay, I, bu I bought them. Couldn't hit them worth a darn. And about three months later, a company called Hot Sticks came through Chicago they were the pioneers in early uh, club fitting and they had a mobile tour van and I signed up for fitting and went out there. And the first thing they do is they look at your equipment and they said, I hate to tell you this, but your, your shafts are marked stiff, but you have all women's shafts in your clubs. It's no wonder you can't hit them. I said, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and I got fit for the proper equipment and started playing a lot better. And I said, wow, well, if that happened to me, you know, maybe it happens to some other people. And I actually tried to buy hot sticks. I did a ton of due diligence and, and chose not to proceed forward because I found some things I wasn't real happy about. But I said, heck, they're not doing it that great. We can we can figure out a way to do it on our own. So I had my eyes open and, and, and just, you know, wanted to start it and happened to stumble across um, a little mom and pop shop in Chicago called EJL Custom Golf. It was a 70-year-old retired commercial banker and a young kid in his 20s who had worked for him since high school. And they were fantastic club fitters and builders. They knew equipment inside and out, but on the business side was exactly what my thesis was. You know, not sophisticated on the business side, no accounting system, no POS system, didn't know if they're making money or losing money. Um, and with a partner, um, decided to, to, to basically buy the majority of that business and use that to, to learn about the ins and outs, but to professionalize it. So we changed the name, changed the image, the branding, set up a you know, distribution and assembly facility, uh, came up with a prototype store and a budget and 
you know, opened the first uh, one in Chicago and then said, okay, it's working here. Let's go to another city and open Philadelphia and then Houston. And you know, now we're, we have 74 locations. We're the 800 pound gorilla in the industry. Uh, and, uh, you know, our early investors made about 37 times their money. So it was a really nice, nice ride for us and still going on. Uh, we've sold it twice. Um, but, you know, why were we I, I, going in? I thought if we would make five to seven times our money, we'd be doing great. Uh, I think we were successful for a couple of reasons. I think we found that exact, you know, we took a mom and pop industry and turned it into a business where we actually look at, can you make money? How do you make a good margin? How do you, you know, set up central production and, and distribution? How do you create a brand and how do you market? And all those things that really nobody else was doing. Um, so it's really a pretty, a pretty simple formula. It was a lot of hard work, a lot of execution, but um, you know, I, I think that, that was my thesis about golf. Find a few niche areas that are, um, you know, not necessarily run the best way and figure out a way to turn them into a business. Um, so. And do you see, or are you still pursuing opportunities in golf or have you more focused? I know you're focused in other areas, but. Yeah, it's interesting. Our fund uh, has yet to make a golf investment. And uh, because we haven't seen anything that, uh, you know, we've turned down a whole bunch of them. And again, in general, I think it's a very, very tough space in which to, to make money. It's a very challenging space. But, you know, I think there are niche opportunities um, where you have a chance of being successful. We're actually an investor in a simulator company called Full Swing Golf, which is the leading indoor simulator company in the country. And again, found a really interesting team and the kind of leader in the space and thought this wave of kind of indoor facilities, both for public um, you know, commercial consumption and for individual homes uh, was an interesting space. And, uh, you know, we're still growing that business um, and hope, hope to be successful. Can you talk, um, you know, we, we talked about this a little before we jumped uh, on the call, but obviously we are in the midst of the coronavirus and things are happening. And, you know, you your portfolio companies are kind of bets even before the coronavirus happened on some of those um, trends that are emerging. And one of the things we wanted to talk about is, do you think trends or what are the trends that you see emerging or even being accelerated by the coronavirus that may have been already happening within the sports industry? You know, you've talked about betting or betting and gambling and fan engagement. And some of your companies are, you know, are, are obviously portfolio companies are obviously heavily invested in the space. How, how have your, how have you seen those trends be impacted and how have you see, or do you see other trends emerging given the impact of the coronavirus? So I think the one that I see that jumps to the forefront, uh, two that really jumped to the forefront the most, one is the whole immersive media and kind of fan experience remotely uh, because you think about all these fanless stadiums during all the time in between plays, particularly in a sport like baseball or football where there's a lot of downtime, you know, there's camera shots of the fans and the stands and the cheerleaders and whatever else, they have to fill all that time to keep interest, you know, there's no crowd noise, there's no, uh, there's no environment per se. So uh, we have a couple companies that are in the immersive media video streaming space that help fill that void. 
And, uh, you know, we've had an incredible onslaught of inquiries and where we might have been five, six or seven in priorities with some of these major media companies. I think we've moved to kind of one, two or three on their list now because uh, they, they need to find ways to further engage with their fans and also create additional revenue streams because they're not going to be selling tickets and, and popcorn and, and parking and, and the other things which they ordinarily would. The second one is the sports betting. I think all these states and, and uh, are, are hurting for revenue in, in a lot of ways, and, and betting is a way for them to recoup some of that. And, you know, whereas uh, I think 18 states had passed some form of gambling as of a month or two ago, you know, there's probably another 15 that have fast-tracked and including California, which looked like it was never going to happen. And I think it's on the ballot in November this year in California. So, you know, most analysts say by 2022, 2023, they'll 40 to 50 states will have approved some form of sports betting. Um, the space is very overheated. It's very overcrowded. There's lots of people trying to do lots of things. There's people coming up with, you know, non-gaming gamification type things that they hope will evolve into a sports betting uh, application down the road. There's lots of infrastructure players trying to figure out a way to do that. There's lots of, um, you know, variations on a theme. So again, I think you have to pick your spots very carefully and, and, and tread lightly in some sense. But uh, uh, so I think that has uh, been turbocharged. And then esports has been uh, with everybody at home. Um, I mean, esports is exploding and it's not, you know, traditional sports, but we have several investments in the esports space and we're playing that more from the infrastructure side as opposed to the team side. Uh, we think the team side is a bit overheated and overpriced, but, but you know, being a technology provider um, or an infrastructure provider, we think is, you know, there's some interesting angles there. And there's going to be a lot of betting on esports too, which, you know, hard to believe, but people watch people playing video games and gamble on it. So it's uh, interesting. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the infrastructure play in the esports space in particular? What are you seeing there and what are the opportunities that you guys are looking at? In the one investment that we've made um, is a company called Repeat. And uh, what they do is they um, have a tournament platform that enables uh, result verification. Uh, a lot of these tournaments, people have to self-report results and there's a lot of um, discrepancies about who, who, who won what and, and, and they go to d dispute. And, and uh, these guys have developed a AI-driven platform that helps um, automate, um, you know, tournament uh, activation results reporting. Um, and uh, again, it's something that we can market to lots of different places. It's, it's, we think it's a, it's a differentiated offering and, and uh, started interestingly by an Australian who, uh, you know, was coming to the U.S. to play basketball. I believe the University of Michigan got hurt and became a, a video game and then became like one of the top ranked video game players in the world and uh, then decided to make it, uh, you know, a business and not, not a hobby. And one of the other areas that you, you've uh, examined in the past is the health and wellness space. Are you seeing something health, wellness, and wear in the wearable space? Are you seeing opportunities there? Yeah, we, we've not made a, a bet on a pure wearable, although we do have an interesting play in the cycling space, um, kind of a, a very novel bike computer for avid cyclists. But, 
uh, again, it's, you know, Fitbit got hot and a few other companies and then the space got a, got a bit overcharged. Uh, you know, I think consumer plays are challenging and typically take a lot of capital and it's a, it's a big boys game. Um, but we, yeah, we, we see a ton, we see a lot in rehab and physical therapy and devices for injury prevention, injury screening, so, you know, just a, a, a whole bunch of those. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed ideas, ideas that people come up with, you know, and many are because they're fresh, were frustrated that there wasn't something for them to use as an athlete themselves. So they came up with a solution for it. Um, I mean, before, you know, before Corona hit, we saw just a ton of, you know, gym management platforms and um, exercise facility platforms, whether it's, you know, things like ClassPass, where you could, you know, utilize a bunch of different places or, or automated systems for registering and checking in folks, uh, you know, a lot, lot of variations on, on a theme. And we also saw a ton of stuff in, in facility management, all these big stadiums and arenas, how to streamline concessions and parking and know what's going on and how to market to various um, different cultural constituencies, whether it's the kind of food you serve in the concession stands or uh, other uh, areas. So, but that, that's a space that obviously hit, hit really hard right now and venues are not operating uh, and won't be for the foreseeable future. You know, it's, it's a challenging place to be right now. And we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about the sponsorship space and what you're seeing there, both given in terms of your investments and advisory board, you obviously have a lot of connections in there. Have you seen any kind of trends accelerate in the sponsorship space as well? You know, we're not super active there. We have one kind of social media related um, platform company. But um, again, we've, we've seen a lot of deals, but we haven't, we've just, we've just seen it be, be crowded and challenging and tough to make money. And I think even before Corona hit, kind of leagues, teams and brands can, can tend to be a little bit cheap and, and, and tough with, with the money. And, and now the purse strings have tightened up even further. So uh, we, ju we just hadn't seen a lot of deals where we could see a path to growing a, a really significant company. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of players in the space and some have had moderate success, but uh, it's not it's not an area that we spend a ton of time on. Uh, as we're getting towards the end of the podcast, I wanted to ask you two uh, final questions. One is, you know, one of the questions we ask all of our guests is, uh, is there a challenging personal or, or professional experience that you've had that's kind of shaped your path forward and shaped either what did you learn from that and how has it shaped your um, ongoing career and in your ongoing success? Um, you know, we've obviously had challenges. I think one of the biggest ones is when you have to fire a CEO or change out a management team. That's all, you know, that's the person or team that you bet on and you've lived with for some period of time. And when it's just not working or the job's not getting done, sometimes it's personal personality wise and other times, many times it's just not in you know, execution wise, the job isn't getting done. But unfortunately that's part of the job and I've probably had to swap out you know, half a dozen or more CEOs, probably more than that. So half a dozen that maybe weren't so easy and half a dozen where the person just said, yeah, I'm not the right, you know, it's time to bring in a, someone who's got more capabilities. You know, many times in these tech driven companies, you'll have a very technology driven founder and they really, they're, they're called the CEO, but in reality, they're the CTO. And you know, at some point in time, there's going to have to be a business person brought in to really scale the business. And we try to have those discussions with people up front. 
And other times you just have this crazy, charismatic, great leader, CEO that has incredible ideas, energy, but never seems to get anything done. You know, they, they talk about all the great stuff and, but, but, you know, they, they, they can't get anything closed. So I, I just think it's challenging because I'm a relationship person. You build relationships with people. And then when you have to say, sorry, you're not getting the job done, that's hard. That's hard. And, and, and most of them have gone reasonably well, but there have been a few that have been pretty challenging. Um, we had one company where two years in, we found out the CEO was a raging alcoholic. I mean, that was you know hard to, you know, know that going in. Um, so, you know, when you've done enough stuff, you've, you've seen, you've, you've seen a lot. But so I'd say that that's probably the worst, the worst part of the job. How do you bring in the new management team then? How do you identify management team and how do you bring that in and how do you facilitate that transition? So we traditionally have not used executive recruiters. Uh, we have in very, very rare instances, but usually it's through our network. We, we um, know somebody, find somebody, somebody introduces to somebody who introduces us to somebody and we do a process, you know, we'll screen or interview 5, 10, 15, 20, sometimes more people. And until uh, we find the right fit who's, you know, has hopefully the domain expertise, the ability to lead, who's willing to take some risk, because in many of those situations, the, the, the reason you're bringing someone in is the company is challenged. So, you know, a lot of times that means short on cash, can't pay somebody a big salary. You know, someone's got to believe in taking equity and that the equity is going to be worth a lot of money. So, um, that's always a tough sell. So you got to find somebody who's either financially comfortable and doesn't need to make a lot of money uh, or someone who just, you know, buys the dream and, you know, this is what they, what, what they want to do. Um, but it's, it's, it's always an interesting dynamic. I'm going through uh, one right now that uh, we're in the midst of doing that, swapping out a CEO and we've had an exhaustive recruiting process and um, you know, the guy we had, agreed to and he had agreed found out from his existing company that he was supposed to get a, a massive bonus and um they said due to corona the bonus is being pushed back a year and you don't get it if you're not here with the company so he turned down the job after he accepted it so now we're back to you know looking for other candidates so you see all kinds of you know all kinds of situations and you just you just like i said you got to have a cast iron stomach you got to be able to go with the flow and uh, shake off um some things and just just move forward and that goes to the last question which is again this is a student oriented podcast and you know, like i said we have students who are trying to break into the sports industry or, or progress in the sports industry you know you obviously work with portfolio companies that are hiring students or hiring uh, employees all the time. You obviously have experience yourself hiring people. What would you say you would be looking for in a hire? What are your portfolio companies looking for a hire for um, in order to be successful at those organizations? So to me, there's never a substitute for enthusiasm and, you know, kind of the I'll do anything to get the job done attitude. And sometimes people say it, but don't live it. And other times people don't say it and they do live it. So, you know, so I, I, so I think, you know, passion is, is, is super important. I think some element of risk taking because these early stage companies obviously have risks. Some go north and some go south and some go sideways. So, uh, you know, the person that says, you know, I need to make, you know, this huge amount of money to support my family or my lifestyle or whatever, that's typically not a great candidate 
for these companies, you got to be willing to kind of pay, pay your dues early on because there's not usually a lot of cash to, to, to throw around. Um, I think you know, one of my pet peeves is when someone, you know, comes in and they're all gung-ho and want to do, but they've done zero research and know nothing about, you know, the company or the industry and they haven't done their homework. And, um, you know, like I said, you only get one, one chance to make a good first impression. And um, so it, the first impression to me is really, really important. I, I, I'm amazed in my career. I've gotten business plans with ketchup and mustard stains on them and paper wrinkled up. And I'm saying like, look, if this person's asking me for $3 million and they send me something that looks like that, you know, it's not a great, you know, great first sign. So um, I, I tend to be a stickler for detail. I get stuff with misspelled words and run on sentences and, and terrible grammar. And, you know, just like, if you're trying to impress somebody, uh, whether it's for a job or for funding or anything else, you know, I think how you would, you know, be viewed if you got something like that, what would be your, you know, your first impression? So, um, so I think it's important to be, to be very professional. It doesn't mean you have to be super buttoned up and dress fancy and do it. You just have to be you but show that you've, you've put some thought into uh, what you came to talk about and, and, and be able to articulate why you think you might be a good candidate for the opportunity. I think that's great advice, great insight. I think it's a good place to leave it. So Keith, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all the um, giving your, the students a, a look into what you're doing, into your experience, how you've been successful. Really appreciate it. And, and we're happy to have you on the Red Above Replacement Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And hope, uh, hope it was helpful. Oh, definitely was. Thanks. Thanks again, Keith. Take care.